Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Despite heightened tension on Capitol Hill, numerous legislative proposals and agreements are inching towards a vote, including the NDAA, USMCA, and two spending packages. In a conversation moderated by Mark Begich, Brownstein's Elizabeth Mayer, Brian McKean, and Drew Littman discuss imminent legislation that could receive bipartisan support and explore policy ideas that could materialize into law down the road. Welcome back to another Brownstein podcast. I'm Mark Baggage. I'm joined by my colleagues, Elizabeth Mayer, Drew Littman, Brian McKean, for another Senate update. There seems to be, as we all see on the news, tons of commotion over impeachment, Mueller report, uh, president's taxes. That seems to grab the news these days. But in reality, there are many things that are critical that are in front of the Senate. We've got the National Defense Authorization Bill, Appropriation Bills, Immigration Reform, USMCA. And I think I just saw something uh, that come over that uh, the emergency funding is moving very rapidly. So there's a lot of real meat and potatoes, despite all the noise that seems to be out there. And and maybe we'll start with the big one, which is a, a must-pass piece of legislation, National Defense Authorization Bill. Uh, this is usually a bill that has several riders or attempt to put riders in and pieces because everyone knows this bill must pass because it deals with our national defense. So let me maybe start with Elizabeth. Give me a sense of what you think is happening or not going to happen with this bill. I want to say it's early, but not Really, it always kind of starts around this time, but never finishes. <laughs> so tell me what your thoughts. Well, theoretically, it is preferred um, that the NDAA pass before defense appropriations. That doesn't always happen, but uh, that's the preferred route. It's passed, I think, approximately 50 times in the past. This year, uh, some more conservative members of the House are saying they they don't know if it's going to get across the finish line. Um the Senate, by and large, both Democrats and Republicans, make this a huge priority. They want it to pass into law. And so I think uh, without getting into the details about uh, where these bills are in the process, I think the Senate will be done quickly. The House might take a little bit longer. There are splits within the Democratic Party, and uh, maybe Drew and Brian can expand on this a little bit about how defense should really be funded and whether it should match the same levels that domestic spending gets. But at the end of the day, while there are a lot of controversial issues that will take up time on this bill, at the, the, at the end of the day, finally, usually in conference, they, um, they shed those controversial items um, and the bill gets sent to the president and gets signed. Let's explore that on the Democratic side. You know, there is always this great debate of how much money and what are the ratios. You know, what is what does defense get? What does domestic spending get? And this is the great, you know, great debate. Uh, Brian or Drew, any comment? So we're migrating from authorization, which is where we started with the defense authorization bill, to appropriations, which Correct. are the actual spending levels, because funding is authorized for the individual programs, but usually we don't spend up to the authorization amount. How much they spend is in the appropriations bills. I think that we now seem to have a one-to-one 
relationship or ratio between defense spending, which is a form of discretionary spending, and non-defense discretionary spending, which is all of the domestic spending except for entitlements. That one-to-one ratio is almost completely arbitrary. I mean, it's not dictated by any economic or even specific policy reason. It's more that one side wants more (laughs) money for defense, one side wants more money for domestic priorities, and the only way to get enough of them from both sides to vote for spending bills is to give them equal amounts of money. But again, that's not really driven by policy. What, what you, Brian? As this bill advances to the floor, and, and you know, there were some amendments yesterday that were offered in committee that were interesting, maybe not necessarily directly tied to you know a a line item for uh, you know a, 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 an airplane or something like that. But we may see what happens on the floor. There may be attempts by freshman Democrats, more progressive Democrats to, as Drew was alluding to, uh, try and shift some funding to other priorities that um, you know the Democrats feel are, are, are equally as important as and, national security. And this is a bill, when you think of the appropriations in the NDA, NDA especially, people are trying to put stuff on that bill that totally unrelated, but in order because they know it's going to pass. And then the, the appropriation bill, they're trying to put riders in there to get money or language to tweak and from from our you know from a lot of our clients brownstein's clients they watch these bills very carefully because it could impact them negatively or positively but it's kind of the vehicles that are moving in essence yeah you're you're exactly right and which not much moves in congress these days so this is like the the train that's so so senator mcconnell in the senate we'll go back to the nda here is uh expected to file cloture on the motion to proceed the nda i believe today um, setting up uh, floor action in the Senate on that bill over the next two weeks. And um, the first series of amendments are, have already been filed in the Senate to the NDA, and some of them have nothing to do with, to your point, national security or, Usually or defense hundreds issues. hundreds of amendments. Um, there, I think there are already 50 or 60 filed, and a lot of them are completely unrelated. So to your point, you know, folks that are interested in seeing something move, this bill often does provide an opportunity to attach something that's unrelated because if there's enough weight behind uh, the policy or the initiative or, or stopping something from happening, it, it can get attached here if the leadership is bought into it. Elizabeth? Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. And, uh, you know, I know that we're trying to go issue by issue, but they're all bleeding into they're each other this connected. year. And um, just to, to toggle off Brian's point on back onto appropriations and the budget caps, just to give a a forecast for what might happen with all of the appropriations bills, the House is chugging along as untidy as it is. And, you know, you have Chip Roy, who insisted on a vote on every single amendment um, to the first tranche of the minibus. But the Senate hasn't even scheduled markups. Um, And that is because they don't have an agreement yet on uh, the budget caps. I believe that progress is being made and we might see something in very short order. Um, but in talking to some committee and personal office staff in the Senate uh, recently, they are very concerned that we're probably facing a CR in the fall. That That's their opinion. Let me ask you, Drew, the budget caps are always these issues, right? They, I remember when I was in the Senate, uh, we did legislation that, you know, basically sequestered a just Set an amount, and that was mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And it li- literally drove the budgets down to some degree, but definitely it drove the deficit down per year. 
But now we have this great debate of what's going to happen with these caps. And everyone on both sides kind of want it but don't want it and is kind of sometimes a – you know, they they look the other way as the numbers move a little bit. What, what do you think is going to happen here? And well, I think I think we'll have agreement on raising the budget caps. And and 2018 was a relatively uneventful year in terms of uh, uh, passing the appropriations bills. In the end, I think the most important decision with respect to the budget negotiations will probably never be mentioned on the House or Senate floor or in committee. But that was the administration's move to put Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin in charge of the negotiations, Mnuchin supplanting the White House Chief of Staff, Mick Mulvaney, who was Mr. Shutdown when he was a backbencher right. in the House. Mulvaney is not really a negotiator. He's, he's, this is my position. So they moved out the, Mulvaney. They moved out the budget chief. And they put Mnuchin in the center. Mnuchin has a longer-standing relationship with President Trump. And he's generally seen as non-ideological. He's a New York finance guy. Right. He's not I mean, a right. He supported Democrats in the past. And supported, supported Democrats in the past. Yeah. Socialized with Democrats, right. much much like Trump did. So he seems to have numbers in mind. And mm-hmm. I think, both from the point of view of um, Senator Shelby, the Republican chair of the Senate Appropriations Committee, and and Speaker Pelosi, they can probably work with Mnuchin a heck of a lot more easily than they can with anyone else in the White House. So I think we're less likely to hurdle toward a shutdown. I do think also, I mean, I just can't resist mentioning, President Trump has a history of leaving bankruptcies behind and leaving other people to foot the bill. And and he seems to be operating the government in that way. And I think part of the challenge for Mulvaney, House Freedom Caucus is dead set against increasing the deficit. And they're right to feel that in the Trump administration, that philosophy has been ignored or repudiated. They're wrong tactically about what to do about it. But Trump doesn't seem to care much about spending. I mean, you don't hear Trump talking about spending. He talks about lots of other things he wants. He doesn't talk about spending caps. Yeah, I'm just quickly, um, like Brian's perspective too, but uh, I I would say that that had been the case up until even, you know, just very recently last week. But very recently, Mick Mulvaney gave a, a speech and outlined three scenarios he thought would would end up uh, being uh, the the negotiating figures for lifting the caps. And one was to stick with level funding for this next year or stick with level funding and then kind of fold in an inflationary rate um, addition. And then one would be to increase it substantially. So he, though, while historically has always been, and he sounded that way all the way up until very recently, um, he did give a speech recently where he, he sort of sounded less intransigent about where it was going to go. And he was involved with meetings very recently where they're looking to try to, to find a, a figure to get to to get everybody's buy off. And, and I'll just add that, you know, for clients out there that, you know, hear us talk about budget caps and, you know, how does that impact us um, or other folks listening to the podcast who have if you have any interest in the federal government um, <laughs> through, uh, you know, funding um, or through offices functioning at a high level in a you know quick capacity, the se- sequester and the Budget Control Act become real if they go into effect because they are hard. They're hard numbers. Dollar numbers yeah. that mean that each agency, each sub agency, is going to have to cut its budget in some way, shape, or form to some dollar amount. It's going to mean stuff's going to 
certain things won't happen or certain things will happen more slowly. So there's a real-world impact here if you're depending on or uh, involved in um, you know, federal spending, if, yeah. if, this, if we don't fix these caps. Where we are today, are we in a, a September, end of September crisis moment? And then, like you said, maybe there's a CR. What, what, what with these appropriation bills do we see as the timing? Or are we just business as usual, which means come fall, early winter, <laughs> we're all sitting here watching that 1 a.m. activity going. Comments on that? What, what do we think the timing are, Brian? Well, I, I, it's a really good question. I, I think it still remains to be seen. And the other element that I think will dictate the timing, maybe even more so than the Budget Control Act and the fiscal year 2020 appropriations process is the debt ceiling, mm-hmm. which Treasury that, has, That's my second question. Yeah, so that's, well, sorry to, <laughs> to, 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 has said publicly to he jump wants here. tied to the package or yeah. the increase. So I, I think this will get done when there is uh, the inflection point of the debt. I think the debt ceiling will drive that because I think that's even more of a – well, it is more of a risk to – the global economy and let alone the United States economy. And the letter that Mnuchin sent a month ago up to Congress um, shows that extraordinary measures on the debt limit expire in their estimation by the very end of summer, not by late fall, which is what the estimate had been before. Who knows if that number will change, but um, but that that is the deadline as of right now is the end of summer. Drew, let me ask you this closing comment on the budget, at least. The budget never goes away, right? Because the budget's always part of what decides policy. The one issue you don't hear about, we kind of skirted a little bit around it, but we don't hear much about it, is the deficit. I mean, what happened to all these deficit hawks? Uh, You know, we used to be, we're we're almost a trillion dollars annually now in deficit spending, where less than four years ago it was around three hundred and fifty billion, so it's increased dramatically. But we're almost a trillion dollars so a year. <laughs> a while back, as you'll recall, we we eliminated earmarks right. as a as a tool for members of Congress to get funding for specific projects, as if that was going to solve the deficit problem, and that was fairly trivial. Uh, in the meantime, deficits have risen and risen, and that's partly because we got past various. I guess, gateways in terms of the size of the deficit, and nothing happened to the economy. I mean, really nothing happened. But it's also because today, Republicans enacted a huge tax cut, which meant a a lot of deficit spending, and they did it at a time when the economy did not need to be stimulated. There was no macroeconomic reason to cut taxes. There's no fairness reason to cut taxes. That makes it very hard. You cut a trillion dollars in taxes. It's very hard to come back and complain about the deficit. I mean, they drove it up. So, so that's been taken away for Republicans. And I think Democrats are looking at the way Republicans have responded to deficit reduction by Democrats, which is to say Republicans have driven up the deficits and said, look, why do we have to be the austerity people all the time? If they can spend, we can spend. It's an amazing uh, – I know the Medicare fix was bipartisan and it was 300 and some billion dollars no one cared about. They, you they, mean the Part D? This was the doc fix. Oh, oh yeah. sure. It, yeah, it was like the most pay, bipartisan no one paid for it. It right. was like the, when you don't have to pay for something – it's the bipartisanship comes suddenly in fold. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say <laughs> this. the most amazing I'll, thing. I'll, I'll say this also, and, and, and you can illuminate this, but a lot of the moderate deal-making Democrats are gone. They're gone. Right? Because, because the 
voting public is sorted out blue versus red. Mm-hmm. There aren't many purple states. There aren't many purple districts. You don't have Democrats uh, from Alaska in the Senate. When Mulvaney was elected to the House, he beat John Spratt, the Democrat who was the chairman of the House Budget Committee Mm. and was a deficit hawk. So on the Democratic side, a lot of the senators and House members who prioritize that stuff, they're simply gone. Mm -hmm. And no one picked up the torch. That's part of the reality of red versus blue politics. Yeah, and and I ultimately think that that when rubber meets the road— the party in charge doesn't care about deficits. It right. doesn't drive voters. Um, it sounds good on the stump, but when it's a very when, small percentage of voters that care exactly very small. When, when the party's in charge, like Drew said, you know the 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 tax cut bill last year, a trillion and a half dollars, and no one on the Republican side blinked about um, the deficit increase. But similarly, Democrats, when they were in charge, tried to put forward you know um, spending legislation that that similarly was not as uh, and, I re- paid for. and I recall this because I was in the Senate and I, right, sure. some of us, like you said, opposed it because it was – I remember when we were doing the stimulus bill. The, the number was getting huge and it was, we, we actually – a group of moderates got in a room and said, hey, you know, stop this. This is – you know, the faucet just isn't unending. You got to turn the faucet off. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't want to devolve into a, Carry de- that into a debate <laughs> about economic theory, but right. So the stimulus bill was arguably into the trillions, you know, just shy of it maybe. Um, and that was deficit spending. It comes down to sometimes, um, and I'm not defending deficit spending, but for a lot of Republicans, a tax cut does not equal they don't believe that it has to be, quote, paid for because they believe the economy that the will be economy will be stimulated. Um, and, you know, I, I guess that remains to be seen with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act um, that passed, you know, a bit ago. So, you I mean, know, that, a philosophical difference there about. is a philosophical difference to, to Drew's point. And that's why, you know, whoever is in in office in one way or another in the presidency or controls the Senate will spend They'll spend. It's just in different ways. <laughs> right. Let me ask you now, this is, a, of course, a non controversial issue I'll bring up here pay raise. And uh, I'm going to start with you, Drew, because yeah. it seems like the Democrats, Denny Hoyer, and has been approached by a group of folks, young, younger members interested in uh, not having it. There's other members who quietly would like it. Uh, I think it's been a decade or more since their pay has increased, but it also has an impact. To you know, people work. You all worked at some point on in in the legislative process, and it holds down uh, the pay of employees in mm-hmm. a certain degree, which means you can't also get the quality uh, because the pay does make a difference when you yep. live in a high cost area. And I will say this as a former senator: you know, the Senate, the House, the President. It's a it's a almost a four trillion dollar company. That's what this is. It's the largest single company delivering services every single minute, second of the day. But we then look at the people who run it and we pay them marginally. Now, some will say 174000 for a senator or House member, not leadership, but a general member, is pretty good pay. But when you maintain two households, mm-hmm. you, you know, uh, you're living in a D.C., which is a very high – nothing's cheap here, that's for sure, when it comes to housing – it just seems there's an imbalance, but it's so political. And what what's going to happen here and, and so, kind of solve this problem? 
I'm not sure what's going to happen. I Some th- don't think it's a problem. Let right. Th- I would say the salience of this issue, as far as members of Congress are concerned, is just enormous. It's bigger than abortion. It's, it's bigger than gun control. Pure political. It's totally political, and it always seems like a horrible vote to members. But Congress hasn't had a pay increase in 10 years. And I don't think – it's not like they've recently tested what people think about the possibility of a $4,500 pay increase. P- People, even people who have very firm opinions about this, don't actually know how the public would react. It's been too long since the last one for anyone to know. So I'd love to see them show that they think that they deserve to get paid a little more and that we don't want Congress to be dominated by very wealthy people. As you said, I worked for when I worked for uh, Barbara Boxer uh, before she was elected to the Senate, she served in the House from principally from Marin County. To maintain a household in Marin County and Washington, D.C. is enormously expensive. Now, I sympathize with Congressman Dan Kildee, who's very much in touch with his district, Flint, Michigan, very low average incomes in the 20,000s household incomes. I understand why he might think that members of Congress don't need a pay increase. But my God, it's just unaffordable. For but it has an impact to staff, too. Well, you bet. You know, uh, costs in D.C. have exploded. Housing costs have exploded. Now you've got Amazon building HQ2 out just past Arlington. For for people who are listening who don't know the geography, they're building HQ2 sort of at the edge of the Washington, D.C. commuting zone. They're making all of the housing in between D.C. and HQ2 is is suddenly – just skyrocketing in price, up like 20 percent, and they haven't really built anything yet. So it's an impossible situation for staff. It's very, very difficult. Yeah, there there was actually – I read an analysis last night about Arlington County that the home prices even before Amazon has moved in have gone up – they went up 17 percent. On speculation. Last month, year over year to last year. And Drew's exactly right. For for staff living here, you know – Every day of the year, it's it's difficult to to uh, to maintain that um, if you haven't been able to get an increase in pay in ten years. I mean, if you think about it, this is where you know people focus on the pay. Really, it's about the production. If you're a private sector employee employer, it's pay is important, but it's the production of the worker that's more important. So you can pay them a lot of money, but if they're not producing, what's the value, right? But if they're producing a lot, then you're willing to pay them. And it's backwards here. I guess anyone have a prediction of what's going to happen here? I, mean, I, I think that I think there's probably no increase. I think the short term way I think that this would get fixed in a couple of years is for a second term president to say I'm vetoing the ledge branch appropriations bill unless there's a twenty percent. Let the president the take that. Let the president take the bullet because oh, that's the pre- interesting. President's prob- a second term president doesn't have to run again, right? So, right. so. Congress goes to him quietly and says, we can't, we just can't get this through, but you know we need it. Right. So just demands, it, veto a bill right. if, if it's taken out. Veto a bill if it's taken out. Demand that it be in the bill. And eventually, maybe you get something passed that way because Congress doesn't seem to be able to do it. And even if you'd put in there, you know, it's amazing in the political arena right now, all political donations are inflation adjusted every two years. I don't know if you know that. That's why they keep going up. It's the only thing inflation adjusted. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, that actually automatically goes. So security, sometimes uh-huh. it goes, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. But this is automatic. And you would think that, why don't you just put some formula and then it's off the table forever? Right. Well, and, and you know, I think 
there's been some positive momentum. You know, last year there was an effort to start paying interns on a more broad right. basis on the Hill. I think there's a general. Which I did not know in the Senate that that was not. I always paid my interns, but not every, not, was, yeah. not everybody. I didn't does. know that was an option. <laughs> but I think there's a general recognition that you get the government that you pay for, and yeah. if you if the salaries are going to be artificially withheld that are lower than it you know it costs to maintain. Um, a life here for a lot of people, then you're just going to get people who can afford to, to do the jobs. And that's not necessarily it's reflective not that... of the population. So maybe the intern pay can stimulate it. this effort here while it may fail this year can stimulate because the staff needs to make more money. That's just absolutely. Just... Let me ask you now we've we've talked a lot about what isn't working. Uh, there, there, I'm assuming and maybe, you know, Elizabeth, you have some thoughts on this, but what is some of the common ground? I mean, I, I think of some of the the issues that are out there, I mean, you got um, uh, drug pricing, you trade maybe, I don't know. But what's, what's the, you know, because a lot of times we talk always about what's, well, the media really talks about what doesn't work. But there's some things that are slowly kind of crawling through the process that might be bipartisan and happen. What's some, what's yeah, some ideas so or Yeah, so ultimately issues? at the end of the day if appropriations ends up going and a few minibuses or an omnibus, that's one area of sort of common ground. A couple of other areas. One I would say is drug pricing. There apparently is a lot of interaction between the administration and Pelosi's office right now on efforts to reduce the price of drugs, even down to um, you know a, a conversation about requiring a negotiation over the price of certain a list out of drugs in the Medicare space. So. You know, they, I'm trying not to remind people, we, we, there's no negotiations allowed in the Medicare space. Yeah. And this would allow some opportunities, maybe some opportunities. So so that's one area. Um, there are lots of other areas where I feel like Republicans and Democrats are working on a bipartisan basis, but we'll see. You know, it, it also remains to be seen whether Pelosi wants to be sort of affiliated with Trump at the end of the day on a mm-hmm. legislative matter. If that ends up not the case, he can move forwards with some um, uh, proposed regulations on drug pricing and put them into effect and issue a final rule um, or issue even a proposed rule. So that's one area where we are going to see further action. Another area potentially is on uh, data privacy. But again, I don't necessarily believe that anything is going to pass into into law this year. We're still waiting for a draft from the Senate Commerce Committee. It was supposed to be out a bit ago, but it's a lot more complicated an issue than people at first blush think it is. I was recently in a meeting with ranking member of the Energy and Commerce Committee, Walden, and he said he's ready to go. But, um, you know, he's trying to work with Schakowsky and, you know, again, getting something that people from very different states all agree on, whether it's preemption (laughs) issues on privacy or other areas, finding that sweet spot to introduce something that might move is a bit elusive. Drew, any thoughts on common ground in the Especially now that summer is coming, the presidential will really overtake the policy discussions. Speaking of summer, I did see some green shoots. This is a little bit remote, I think, but there are. <laughs> there it are, is Washington D.C. Nothing's remote. Nothing's here. remote. <laughs> there are some fairly new conservative side groups lobbying in support of a carbon tax. Hmm. Um, there was one grassroots group that was up on the hill in the beginning of June. I think they hit. 
531 of the 535 congressional offices with visits during their fly-in, however they structured it. And there's some uh, Republican members who sound like they're at least receptive to the concept um, of a carbon tax, recognizing that something has to be done, nothing's getting done, and this is a relatively market-oriented response. They're hearing a lot from corporations and corporate executives that something has to be done, that they expect something to be done. And that's largely who's funding uh, the lobbying for a carbon tax. So there are a lot of Republican-affiliated groups and executives behind this kind of lobbying. That might be an area down the road. It's kind of a dark horse issue that's kind of out there. A dark horse issue that's out there. It's not going to go away because some we have to reduce carbon emissions somehow. Mm -hmm. Um, They're always rising. So we'll see. Very good. This is a good good update. There's so much that's going on when you think about it. And, you know, lots of times the media consumes the airwaves with a lot of just the, the what I call the noise. As I said earlier, impeachment, Mueller report, president's tax. Soon it will be about every presidential candidate running and all the issues that we are working on here with our clients and others get kind of lost in the mix. So today was a good roundup. So, again, thank you, Elizabeth, Brian, Drew, for Thanks, giving Senator. a great update. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.